Well, good morning, Maranatha. Can you all hear me all right? Good. Well, it's wonderful to see so many of you again, and uh, welcome to those watching online and who will watch this later. Uh, good to be back. We've had a long sojourn over the summer, traveling to various places, but it's wonderful to be home and to see all of you. Um, and it's a privilege to be able to uh, preach God's word to you this morning. So I want to begin with a question. Are people surprised at how you live? Think about that for a minute. Are people surprised at how you live? Do they find elements of your life shocking or inexplicable? Our passage today in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 30, is about Christian living and our witness to the world. And here we receive instruction for how to live and exemplars to honor and imitate. But before we dive in, let's go ahead and pray. Please join me. Father, we thank you that we can gather. We thank you for your word, Lord, that we have this uh, treasure that teaches us about you, that teaches us about ourselves and how to live uh, in this world and how to honor you. Pray that you would be with us in this time, that we would have listening ears and attentive hearts. Uh, Lord, that you would both convict us and encourage us, Lord, that though we are sinful, yet you are a great Savior that loves us and calls us uh, out of our struggles to honor and to love you. I praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So, <clears throat> to return to the initial question, are people surprised at how you live? Let me share two uh, examples from my own life as I think about this. Uh, this summer, I have had conversations with multiple people who find the fact that we regularly have one or more students living with our family inexplicable. I get questions like, doesn't that crowd your space? Isn't that inconvenient or awkward at times? Isn't it risky? How do you navigate the relational complexities that must add? If you want to know the answers to those questions, we can talk after the service. All right? And a second example comes from people's reaction to the fact that my wife and I are expecting our fifth child. A lot of people find that surprising, amusing, or even alarming at times. You all live here in northern New Jersey and New York City. You know what questions people ask about such large family and what they assume. Obviously, religious people and other less flattering stereotypes. All right. These two examples are not themselves explicit Christian witness. Right? How does having people living with you or having a large family convey the gospel after all? Yet both practices are born out of our desire to live faithfully and distinctly from the world. They make people curious. They make people wonder. And they show that something unusual is at work in our lives. Living this way opens doors and gives an unspoken witness of an otherworldliness. Now, of course, you don't have to have non-family members living with you or lots of kids to be distinct lights in the world. There are many ways Christians should be living distinctly. Our passage, for example, is not about the two examples I shared. Instead, it points to other avenues of witness that all Christians should pursue, living blamelessly without grumbling or questioning, being content and joyful, not apathetic in the world. Our brother Eric preached a convicting sermon last week about how God commands us to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And he talked about how many of us don't obey this command. We coast month to month and year to year with little spiritual hunger or growth. We don't fear the Lord as we ought. We are often worldly in our thinking about comfort and career and success and wealth and family and technology. 
And ironically, most of us are not terribly satisfied by how we are living. I benefited from Eric calling this out, and I want to follow up today with the rest of the passage in Philippians to examine why so many of us struggle to obey this command and why obedience is so crucial to our faith. To do this, I think we need to understand two similar-sounding but very different words, complacency and contentment. I've often confused these words in the past, but coming to a clear understanding of them should help us to diagnose our own spiritual health and begin developing a remedy. So let's start simply. Contentment is good. Complacency is bad. Contentment involves fulfillment and satisfaction. When we are content, we are not restless. We are not constantly seeking the next fix or success. Nor are we simply resigned to our fate, like uh, Eeyore for you Winnie the Pooh fans, right? After all, there's no point in wanting what you can't have. No, true godly contentment is satisfaction and joy in God and in his work, whatever it may be. It means being able to say, as Eric pointed out last week, Christ is enough. Christ is enough when I am sick. Christ is enough when I am tired and my children act out for the thousandth time. Christ is enough when I've lost my job. Christ is enough when I'm sad or depressed or lonely. Christ is enough when I am uncertain or fearful about what tomorrow may bring. When we recognize that Christ is enough and we turn to him first, we receive his peace, the peace that transcends understanding and that transcends our circumstances. We are satisfied not because all of our fleshly or earthly desires are satisfied or because we have no pain or difficulty, but because we have hope and assurance and the very presence of God with us. But often we aren't content in the Lord. Instead of being content, we feel listless and restless, like we should be doing something more or something different, that somehow we are not measuring up to other people's expectations or God's expectations. And we reach a point where we forget what godly contentment should look like. Apathy, routine, and the, quote, new normal set in, and we find ourselves following the path of least resistance when we should be striving to be content in the Lord. Instead, we become complacent. And complacency comes in many shapes and sizes. And so we need to be diligent in identifying it and uprooting it from our lives. I'll talk briefly about three sources of complacency, apathy, pride, and selfishness. First, apathetic complacency. We are complacent when we don't care very much about something. To use a seemingly trivial example, when we leave our beds unmade or our rooms a mess, we are being apathetically complacent. We might wish the bed was made or the room was clean, but we don't wish it that much. Not enough to take the two or five or 10 or 15 minutes, however long it takes you to make the bed or clean the room. The implication for prayer and Bible reading should be obvious. The commitment doesn't have to be large, perhaps 10 or 20 minutes a day, less time than we spend eating. But how often do we fail to read God's word and speak with him? Often we don't obey, as Eric preached last week, because our apathy makes us complacent. We can also be complacent in our pride. I could exercise more and eat better, but I'm not going to, not because I don't care, but because I don't feel the need to. 
After all, I eat better and exercise more than my neighbor, my spouse, my siblings, the average Joe, whoever it may be. Or consider another example closer to home. I should strive to raise my kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. I'm doing X. I could do Y and Z too and know my kids would benefit from it. But then again, most people don't even do X. So I'm doing pretty well and don't really need Y and Z or whatever it may be. In my pride, I become complacent because I think I have things together, or at least more together, than most people I compare myself to. Thirdly, we are complacent because we are selfish. We don't care about changing because there's nothing in it for us. We are comfortable with the way things are, and this kind of complacency undercuts love. It insulates us from others because we don't have tough conversations about family or technology, about money or race. We don't want to open ourselves to others in a way that could make us uncomfortable or expose our prejudice, errors, or sins. So here's a question to reflect on. Would you characterize yourself as content in the Lord or as complacent in the world? You may be wondering, how can I know which I am? Jesus says, a tree is known by its fruit. And the Apostle Paul gives us a list in Galatians about the fruit of the Spirit. I encourage you to make a note of this passage, Galatians 5, uh, verses 22 to 23, where Paul writes, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So if you're wondering, how can I know whether I'm complacent or content, you can ask yourself, what spiritual fruit has been growing in your life lately? Love? What have you done out of love lately? Joy? Have you been joyful this week? Would other people say that you have? Peace? Do you feel at peace with God and with other people in this season? Patience? How patient have you been with your children this week? Or your parents, spouse, or roommates. Caveat here, as you all know, preachers are always preaching to themselves, so many of these hit home as I'm preaching them, especially with children. Um, Kindness. Do you practice kindness regularly? Would your Facebook friends say so? Would your coworkers say so? Goodness. What media have you consumed this week? Movies, news, TV? Do they fuel your sense of the goodness of the Lord? Do you come away from them feeling wholesome? Faithfulness. Have you kept your word and your promises this week? How many have you had to walk back? Gentleness. Have you been gentle in thought and deed with those you disagree with? Friends, family, politicians, protesters, police? Self-control. Have you done things you didn't want to do this week? Staying up too late, watching too much TV, eating too much, on and on. Have you not done things you wanted or intended to do? Reading the Word, spending time with your children, and so on. Besides self-reflection, I also encourage you to get a second opinion from someone who knows you well. Right? They may actually have more encouraging things to say to you than you have to say about yourself. So this isn't a call to just uh, focus inwardly entirely. It's to reflect, but also to... Uh, ask others for their insight into your life as well. 
And so I bring up all those questions to think about whether we're living complacently or contentedly. And of course, there's always going to be some mix, right? In some areas we're content, in some areas we're complacent. Um, but I hope that those can sort of spark some thinking uh, as you reflect on where you are. Contentment in the Spirit involves living by the Spirit and bearing the fruit of the Spirit. But complacency leaves no room for the Spirit. It doesn't need the Spirit. And that is why God hates complacency. Consider what he says in Revelation to the church of Laodicea. This is in chapter 3 of Revelation. Jesus speaking to the church. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As C.S. Lewis put it, uh, in the last century, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Complacency is a deep problem for us human beings. You see it throughout the Old Testament, especially with the kings. You see it throughout history, and you see it everywhere in the world today. Complacent people resist change and they resist challenges and tensions. They resist relying on God. Content people accept change and look for what God is doing next. They welcome God's work in their lives, even though it may be painful or confusing or difficult. Paul sometimes uses the image of slumber to illustrate complacency. In Ephesians, he writes, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And Jesus himself tells us in a parable, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes." Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him 
and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Paul, echoing Jesus, is saying, wake up, pay attention, be careful. Don't slip into what is comfortable and easy and selfish. Why? Because it leads to sinfulness. If you look at the rest of Ephesians chapter 5, you can see a long list of sins that Paul is warning the Ephesians against. And he says, wake up, be careful, be aware. Whatever is not done through faith is sin. And complacency is in many ways the antithesis of faith. We are not relying on God and we don't think we need God. As one of my former pastors used to ask, how much of your life are you living functionally as an atheist would? It's a sobering question. But let's return to our text today and to dive into a particularly common and deep-seated fruit of complacency. So in verse 14, Paul writes, Do all things without grumbling or questioning. Wow. I often can't even get out of bed without grumbling in my heart. How many of you have grumbled vocally about something already today? I think for a moment. Or how many of you have grumbled in your heart or your mind about something already today? Let's face it, most of us grumble constantly. The children are not listening or obeying. We were woken up before we wanted to get up. We burned as part of breakfast. We left for church too late. Someone didn't respond to our email or send us something they said they would. We run into unexpected financial difficulty or unexpected health difficulty. Perhaps we grumble about ourselves and our own failures. If only God had made me differently, smarter, healthier, better looking. If only he had given me better circumstances, a loving family, supportive friends, a job I like that pays well, a bigger house or a better car. Or to think about our special COVID-19 moment, have you grumbled recently, out loud or in your heart, about having to wear a mask? Have you grumbled recently about someone else not wearing a mask? I think there will be some special teaching in a town hall on this topic later this fall regarding how we can love one another and strive for unity in this time. So I'll leave that for later. But I'll just add what Paul says here, don't grumble, right? That is fairly clear from the text. Don't grumble. Grumbling is a serious sin, all right? You can look back in Exodus, especially chapters 15 through 17, or in Numbers, especially chapter 14, to see the deep rebelliousness of the Israelites in the desert through their grumbling and questioning. Consider in Deuteronomy chapter 32, which Paul, by the way, is likely recalling in this passage, when, when Paul talks about a shining amidst a, quote, crooked and twisted generation. The only other time that phrase is used, a crooked and twisted generation, is in Deuteronomy 32. And in this chapter, Moses is telling the Israelites about how God is going to give them the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, but how they will disobey what God says. And he teaches them a song. And here are a few verses of this song that Moses is teaching the the people of Israel. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he, They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? 
Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Do you remember how rebellious the Israelites were? They saw the ten plagues God unleashed on Egypt. Then they thought he was going to let the Egyptians kill them by the Red Sea. God splits the Red Sea so they can walk through on dry ground, rescues them from the Egyptian, and before long the people complain about not having enough water to drink and ask if God meant to lead them into the desert to kill them. God provides water for them from a rock and uh, from purifying a spring in another instance, yet they complain about hungry, uh, being hungry. Did God lead them into the desert to kill them? God feeds them with manna from heaven, but some of them still can't follow God's command to only gather what was necessary for the day and to gather extra for the Sabbath. Then they complain about being tired of manna, literal bread from heaven sent by God to sustain them, and they ask for meat. They march to the promised land, then they hear about the giants living there, and they wonder if God has brought them to the promised land to kill them. Right? There's a, there's a pattern here. Right? God does amazing work after amazing work, and they keep saying, did you just take us here to kill us? Right? At several points, they even go on to say they would rather be slaves in Egypt. They want to go back to Egypt because at least they had food there. At least they weren't going to be killed by giants or die of thirst or starvation. starvation. They want to go back to being slaves in Egypt. Were they happy there? Were they flourishing? Were they content? No, they were complacent. Well, at least we had... At least we knew what to expect. At least we didn't have to trust God day in and day out. And all through this trip in the desert, the Israelites questioned everything. Right? Those of you, again, with small children, or who have had small children, remember this. Why, why, why? <laughs> Did God really speak to you, Moses? Did God really put you in charge? How are we going to survive? How will God give us this land? On and on and on, the grumbling and the questioning went. So let's think for a moment, because in our passage today, Paul says, do all things without grumbling or questioning. I don't think that Paul is saying here that we shouldn't ask questions or ask for explanations. All right? Doing that is not wrong. I think this verse is referring to a certain kind of questioning spirit that we might call sort of second-guessing or hard-heartedness or doubting. There's a difference between asking genuine questions and simply wanting to undermine someone. Again, you can tell this with children. Are they, do they actually want to know why, or do they just want to hear you give explanation after explanation, right? where they ask the why, why, why? As Christians, we should live by faith and trust in God, and by extension, our leaders. But especially with our human leaders in the church, we should not follow them blindly, nor should we follow them skeptically. We should want to know some things, but we should also not necessarily demand to know everything before we are willing to trust the decisions they make, whether they're elders or deacons or CG leaders. But why is it important that we do all things without grumbling or questioning? Right? Why is Paul telling us this is what we ought to do? Let's reread the first part of our passage again. It says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, 
among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So in this passage, Paul's saying we should not grumble or question or dispute so that we may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, a holy people, God's family that bears a strong family resemblance, not based on how we look, but based on how we live. Lives of godly contentment. As we live as God's children, we shine like lights in the world in a crooked and twisted generation, a complacent generation. In all this, we hold fast to God's word to instruct, convict, and exhort us. What Paul is talking about in these verses is faithful Christian living. And you can see how much he desires and prizes this faithful living. It makes his work worthwhile. Faithful living brings godly contentment and it is worth rejoicing over. And then in the following sections, we'll look at in a second here, Paul gives us the examples of two godly brothers to imitate, Timothy and Epaphroditus. So hear what Paul has to say about Timothy. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, presumably of their faithful living. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I, shortly I myself will come also. Paul says he has no one like Timothy who will be genuinely concerned about your welfare. Timothy is not like many other preachers who primarily want to make a name for themselves or collect a paycheck or gain power. He is not selfishly seeking his own interests, but genuinely seeking the interests of others. Timothy is not complacent but eager to advance the gospel. Then Paul talks about Epaphroditus. He says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Look at the titles Paul gives Epaphroditus. Brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, messenger, and minister. Epaphroditus risks his life to serve Paul and to advance the gospel. He doesn't have a hint of complacency about him in this passage. And Paul tells us to honor such men and to receive them with joy. These men loved Christ and his people. They sacrificed their own interests at times. They took risks with Epaphroditus even getting very ill. Now, we're not all necessarily called to be missionaries in a foreign country, 
but we should honor missionaries and support them regularly. And we should also be willing to take risks to serve God and his people wherever we are. Taking risk doesn't mean recklessness, where we either totally discount the possibility of harm or simply don't care about being harmed. Instead, it means that we do not allow ourselves to be incapacitated by our concerns over what could happen. Again, a lot could be said about this in our current moment, but I'm going to punt again to a later town hall about living uh, in our current, our current time. Um, but I want to encourage you that these brothers, Timothy, Epaphroditus, Paul himself, right, that they took risks. They went to preach the gospel uh, where God called them to go. And it's probably worth considering just briefly here why Paul writes to the Philippians about grumbling and questioning specifically. We can find clues as to why throughout the rest of the book. We see that as Paul's writing them about not grumbling or questioning, we see that there's conflict and dissension among the believers. Paul pleads with Euodia and Syntyche in, later, in the later chapters to get along and to agree in the Lord. Paul talks about watching out for evildoers and false teachers who grumble against the gospel of God's free grace and continue to bring in Jewish customs as conditions for acceptance into the family of God. And so we can return full circle here to the question we started with. Are people surprised at how you live? Are they surprised at how we Christians live? They should be. And they should be not because we're contrarians, right? Or doing weird things for the sake of being noticed, all right? It's because the gospel is foolishness to unbelievers. Faithful living is radical at times. It is very different from worldly living according to human wisdom. Imagine someone who never grumbled or questioned in everything they did. That person would be more than a little strange, right? They would be completely remarkable. Yet it is exactly this kind of strangeness that we should strive for out of love for God and obedience to his commands. All right? He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Right? Part of working it out is uh, constraining the tongue, as James tells us, to uh, control the tongue. And so, to conclude here, I encourage you, and I encourage myself, don't be complacent. Whether through apathy or pride or selfishness, seek the Lord while he may be found and while your heart is warm. Start building a new habit or practicing a spiritual discipline more intensively this week. Talk with another brother or sister about it for encouragement and ideas and accountability. Take a hard look at your life and your schedule are there things you do that feed apathy, pride, or selfishness? This week, I want to challenge you to enter into God-centered contentment. It means drawing near to the Lord, seeking Him. It means doing what is right, speaking the truth lovingly, bearing with those who grate on us, being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And you'll find that when we live with godly contentment, we no longer feel the need or desire to grumble and question. And we shine like stars in this disgruntled, unhappy, complacent world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for not leaving us where we are, Lord, that you uh, refuse to settle for anything less than our whole hearts, than our commitment to you, 
that you uh, cannot look upon sin, Lord, and you will not tolerate it. Thank you that you sent uh, Jesus, Lord, to cover us, that though we fail and though we struggle, Lord, Jesus is enough, and he uh, lived a completely content life in you, knowing why he was here and what your purposes were. Lord, help us to press into that this week as we evaluate what we do throughout our days, as we think about where we are spiritually. Lord, we ask that you would work, that you would help us to be a content people that do not grumble or question. And Lord, that you would um, cause people to see ways that our lives look different, that uh, our hope is not in this world, that we rely upon you. So I pray again that you would uh, watch over us, that you would work in us, help us to grow closer to one another. Lord, help us to take great joy in the work that you're doing uh, and in encouraging one another as long as it is called today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.